We're back. We're back. It's the distraction. I'm Drew. That's Rob. How you doing, Rob? I'm doing good, dude. How are you? I'm so uh, so honored uh, that you were the only person inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah, I do have some remarks prepared. Uh, it's mostly about the media, and then I also, after the Lugan Press stuff, I want to thank some of the guys I played with on the Diamondbacks. <laughs> I also, I have removed myself uh, from consideration because I believe that the lamestream media uh, should not be in charge of such it's things. It's a very ethical fine. choice. Like, if you're yeah. going to be voted in, it should be by the people that you played with who actually probably hated you more than the reporters. Did. Now, uh, to complete the, uh, the topicality, I'm going to go full circle and invest only in GameStop. There it is. AMC. See, that's, that'll be how people, when people go back and listen to this podcast, like, generations from now, they'll be able to tell by the, the oblique Kurt Schilling jokes, which really weren't very oblique, yep. and then the stupid GameStop thing, they'll be like, oh, right, that'll be the uh, third week of January, year 2021. I could just open with like Jay Leno's voice. Like, Did you hear about this? Did you hear, hear about, about this, this? game? The Redditors and they're driving up the stock. And uh... <laughs> oh, it's already horrible. It's already yeah, a horrible start. So let's talk. <laughs> let's talk to our guest instead, so we can redeem ourselves. Mm. Our guest this week is a chief restaurant critic of the New York Times, Pete Wells. Pete Wells, how are wow. you? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for uh, um, knowing my name and all that. Yes, yeah, we do. we do indeed know your name. Yeah. I would. We're members uh, of that small demo of bourgeois people to whom you're like a major league celebrity. Like this is this is the sweet spot right here. It's like two dudes that uh, work too hard as home chefs and read everything that you write. <laughs> Pete, uh, by the way, is joining us. Pete is uh, Pete is in disguise so that his his cover isn't blown while he's talking to us on Zoom. So he's wearing a hat and uh, a mustache and and. And glasses and fake beard. It's very, very elaborate. You wouldn't know it was Pete Wells if you looked at him. That's why it's so exciting for me. It's like talking to Bobby Valentine and when he was hiding in the dugout with the Mets. <laughs> so how are you, Pete? I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh, can I ask you, like, really, how are you? Because uh, we have a bunch of sh shit to talk to you about. Um, but obviously, you just wrote about your sort of first forays dining uh, out at restaurants in sort of the luxury yurts and tents <laughs> and bubbles and other freestanding strange accoutrements that restaurants in New York have had to erect uh, because of the pandemic. And I just wanted to ask you, because you've been through the past year, you were, of course, are a restaurant critic. That's your job. You essentially had restaurants taken away from you for an entire year. How have you been over the course of that year? I mean, aside from waking up every morning wondering when the Times is going to realize it doesn't need a restaurant critic? Yeah, that was the other <laughs> thing I was going to ask you about that. I mean, I, it's been like just a constant like low simmer panic of like, okay, you know, every week I come up with a story and I send it in and I'm like, oh, okay, can I do another one that is also about the fact that there are no restaurants and... There's nowhere to eat. Okay, and and I, you know, it, um, I it's like it's, oh, it's just like ha like having this like some somebody like chasing you with a knife through your through your dreams and they like wherever you go they turn up in that room and um, it just it doesn't it doesn't end you know um, uh, I mean I know people have it worse than me. But let's take a minute, at least, to feel bad for me, you know? Yeah, <laughs> we absolutely that. want to feel bad for you for yeah. a moment. No this feels like it's sort of a cousin to the way that, you know, as sports writers, it was during the, the real peak of the pandemic, where the only thing that was left to write about in terms of sports was the depressing shit. It was the, like, owner machinations and anxieties about the future and various different sort of, like, cynical decisions that seem to be looming in the future in terms of bringing players back, bringing fans back, whatever, but none of the fun shit. So like yeah. all of the stuff that's actually cool to write about, anything that's like even a little bit transcendent was like far in the future. And so all you were left with was like the will ponds refusing to pay the hot dog guys. Right. Right. <laughs> Which is, you know, exciting for a minute, but yeah, I mean, I had the same thing with, with, you know, I did all these columns about, about, how bad it was going to get and how bad the unemployment was going to be and how, you know, people don't tend to think about the sort of all the ancillary businesses that are dependent on restaurants, the, uh, the you know, the little organic farmer and the flower 
the flower arranger and the you know the um, the linen services and all these you know people who like depend on restaurants and some of them you know like farmers have, are so specialized that they're growing like a specific little microgreen for one chef because yeah, he's because he, like Dan Barber right Dan Barber said that like, type of yeah, thing, yeah grow me a bunch of these and I will buy every one that you grow and all of a sudden you know he's out of business. The farmers got all these microgreens that are getting bigger by the minute, so they're not micro anymore. And, you know, so macro greens. Yes, yes. right. Terrible. Which, right. We used to call them greens, and and uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know, so I did all these pieces about the you know the ramifications and, and and sort of the doom and gloom, and even I started to get tired of it. You know, like I can't imagine what the readers were thinking. Um, uh, and then so finally, when in New York we we allowed outdoor dining again in June, I was like so relieved. It was so like I don't know like what your experience with that was like the first kind of like real game that that you could sink your teeth into. Uh, yeah, but there from, weren't that many that they didn't feel totally real, right. right. It was a little stilted in the same way that eating outside in New York City, which is never something that I especially enjoyed doing. Like. We did it because we were excited to support the places that we wanted to support. And, you know, some of our favorite places are places where you kind of always have to eat outside. Like Superiority Burger is like you eat that on a planter nearby yeah. and that's like how you enjoy it. But a lot of the, the rest of it, it was, yeah, it's been like this process of rationalization for me. I think it's been different, Drew. You were saying that like you guys had done it. And there's just more space where you are. It's less unpleasant to eat outside when you were doing it. Uh, yeah, but I, I've only eaten outside once, uh, during the pandemic and that was not here. That was down, I believe it's St. Michael's in Maryland and we were on a patio, but I did not enjoy, I was not, I did not rest easy. I was not like happy because we had like masks on and then you take the mask off to eat and the waiter has a mask on and that's all good and reassuring that everyone's sort of with it, but it still sucks. Like, yeah. It, it sucks. All the New York experiences were kind of lame to me. The to get our, our requisite main content in here early, uh, the one time the times that we really did enjoy eating outside were all in, in Portland. Because they took it really seriously. There was a lot of space. And the food it was, you know, during the summertime it wasn't so cold that, you know, like if I, there's every time we go to pick up, you know, takeout in our neighborhood now, there's like four or five people, max layers, like scarves, hats, the whole shit eating like an eel cucumber roll outside and it's 38 degrees and <laughs> yeah, i respect yeah. it but that's not us you know like we just couldn't pete can i ask you because we you were talking about uh the pandemic sort of in the context of your job as a restaurant critic did you feel um did you feel prepared for essentially what was a shift in your job description because you went from being a restaurant critic and you still are obviously but you also you know, you've had to essentially cover the uh, the plight of the restaurant industry as a whole during the pandemic. Do you feel like you were prepared for that, or do you feel have you been able to adjust to that? Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I had to become a, a beat reporter. You know, which, yeah. which is a totally different thing. I mean, when you're a critic, you can just make it all up, and the, the reporter, <laughs> you know, you're supposed to have facts and spell people's names correctly and all, you know, this other stuff. And, you know, I had, I've had, had a little experience. I mean, I, I, I used to be a feature writer or I, or I have, I have, I was never a full-time feature writer, but I've written features and I have done some breaking news stories at the times. And, uh, you know, I was sort of surrounded by really good editors who, who taught me what a breaking news story is supposed to look like. Um, but it was still like, I, I couldn't adjust to the, the the pace mostly you know because I'm used to having a week to work on a story so I'd be on a breaking news piece and it would still take me a week you know uh, it, it was that was that was hard but that's just you know my metabolism the rest of it was kind of in place you know I knew how to I knew how to talk to people I knew how to how to you know get them to tell me what I needed to know um, and actually that was a uh, uh, that was one of the things I enjoyed can you say you enjoyed so yeah i guess we're allowed you to, can say you can we're say allowed to enjoyed. enjoy yeah. parts of the pandemic right i mean I, so I, I was talking to these restaurant people chefs and, and waiters and 
uh, and owners and stuff who I normally have a very guarded relationship with, you know, like with the waiters. It's like I come in, they pretend they don't recognize me. I pretend that I can't tell that they do recognize me. And we, and we do this pantomime thing. And I've had, you know, conversations this year where I got to, like, really talk to them. Like, like hi, tell me how you feel. And, like, is this stressing you out? Are you, are, are you like, are you, gonna, you know, uh, are you, do you wish you weren't working? Are you happy to be working? Uh, and, you know, you ask a few questions, you know, nowadays. And, and people just, they just have so much to say, you know. And, and I had the same experiences with chefs who normally we'd have a very like guarded dance because i only call them when i've written the review and i'm checking facts and i want to know what was in you know the lamb stew and they just want to know how many stars i'm giving them and i and i and i don't tell them so it's it, it's a it's always a really awkward conversation and they try to be really nice as if like it's going to change my mind you know and, uh and this you know past year i they've just been like pouring out their guts to me like just about how nervous they are and how like how like bad they feel for their servers and how angry they are with the government and you know it's so uh it's been cool to go from you know being up in this little orchestra box you know looking down on the stage to like you know actually like getting down and talking to people and, and and getting to know them a little bit, you know? Could you, uh, are there any specific, do you have any specific memories of people you talk to that, that come to you that, are, you know, have sort of stuck in, stuck with you? God, you know, the, the, I, I, I did this piece on servers where I, you know, I don't talk to, I just don't interview servers very often. And it's kind of hard because you don't, you know, like if you're reviewing a restaurant, you don't call the chef and say, hey, I want to talk to one of your waiters, you know, like, like the, the, you know, they would be so suspicious of that. So, but, but I got in touch with a bunch, um, and all of their, like all of them were, were just under such incredible stress in ways that like I could sort of had seen, but I, had, I hadn't really felt it until I talked to them. Like just the, the stress of being the person who has to like, say to a customer like i'm sorry you have to put your mask back on you know i'm sorry you're, you can't stand here this is we don't have customers in this area and and sort of having to to enforce these rules that that they didn't come up with you know that they, they were handed these rules and they, right. and they have to tell the customers how to behave occasionally they get you know you know just jerks who who want to argue with them um in New York? Uh, yeah, believe it or not, <laughs> right? Um, but even, you know, even, even when they weren't arguing with people, they, they, they found it stressful to have to say no because their job is to say yes, you know? Like, can I have another cocktail? Yes, you know? Can I get the microgreens on the side? Yes. You know, they, they hate saying no, and it's not, in their, it's not in their nature. So they were in all these positions like, I'm sorry, you can't move that chair because you're too close to the people at the next table. You have to move it back. There, it, it was like, I, I kind of compared it to like when after 9-11, flight attendants went from being like, can I, you know, can I get you coffee to be like, sit down right now, sir, you sit down, put on your seatbelt. Like they had to, to take on the security role that w- was, you know, really different. And, uh, and, and for some of them must have been really stressful, you know. Right, it's another job. It's not the job it was. It's, it's not the job. And, and, and yet, and yet all the up job, and down the culture, you see it. Yeah, you see it still. And the job that it was still exists and that they're still working for tips. So they're trying to get tips out of somebody who they just had to scold like a, like a hall monitor. And it, it's like, it's like, so they worry about, like, am I going to lose money because I have to tell this jerk to sit down? Does it change? Has that changed your perspective as a critic, like, do you look back on the work you've, like, will it change how you review restaurants? Let's say everything goes back to normal with a wave of a magic vaccine or whatever, and you're back to doing the, the same sort of reviews you've been doing in the past. Will that, it'll obviously inform your work, but will it change your approach to how you do your job next? God, it's so hard to, it's so hard to imagine. I know, I know that I won't be able to do it the same way. I'm not the same person, and, and I don't, Maybe don't see restaurants the same way anymore. I, it's hard to predict what will 
what will really change. I mean, what you know, one thing that's that's very different right now is I'm like even more like interested in the in sort of underdog restaurants than I was before. Like I would always try to mix in like you know famous chefs that you've heard of, and then some place that you've never heard of in a neighborhood you probably haven't been to. Uh, in the last five years, but, you know, try to find these off-the-radar places that I could really, you know, champion and feel good about. And I always, I always kind of knew I was in the right place if, like, if I, if they didn't know who I was, you know, that was like, okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, because there's a certain kind of restaurant that cares about the New York Times review and a certain kind of restaurant that, like, yeah, they, maybe they care, they've heard about it, but they don't have my picture on the wall. And when I was in those places, I, and I loved the food, I got so you know, got so excited, and just something about the 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 past year has made me think, God, I should have done ten times as many of those reviews, you know, like the you know the 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 guys who have four or five restaurants and one in Miami and one in Las Vegas, like. They're okay. They're they're okay. They have their own problems, you know. But the, right. But the, but it's the, you know, it's these little places that like I have the sort of the power to bring some attention to them. Like why don't I do it like ten times more than I'm doing it? Um, I, you know they like they they could use it. And then the other the other thing which is kind of related to that is is. Uh, I feel like I've underestimated how important neighborhood restaurants are in the scheme of things, you know, because I always want to write about a destination in some sense. I want to write about a place that somebody who, who doesn't live across the street would make a special trip to go there. But like just through the pandemic, it's, it's the neighborhood restaurants that have helped us survive, you know, the neighborhood restaurants that didn't close up, that have just kept at it with their, you know, their takeout and their delivery and maybe a couple tables out front. And they've just, they've just been there for people who like, you know, didn't leave the neighborhood. People who did, you know, people who stayed in the city and people who did, who weren't going in to Midtown to have a, you know, $500 dinner because the restaurants in Midtown were all closed. Uh, yeah, those are the restaurants that also didn't get PPP loans. Like, it was Shake Shack that got Right, like because they're not, like, as hooked up with the banks and the whatever. I mean, this has been, like, the whole lesson of... It's interesting to hear you saying it, too, because that's something my wife and I were talking about recently is, like, this weird, like, tenderness that we feel towards places that we, you know, where we, like, know the people and we go there frequently. But, like, when the... There was like a slice place, like a pizza place in our neighborhood that closed. And they put the plywood up and we really didn't have high hopes. And when it opened again, like honestly, like as happy as I've been in the last six months, as happy as I've seen my wife was me. Like I went in there, got a slice, brought it back to her that she wasn't expecting. And she was so happy to see it, not just because it meant that we got to eat our pizza again, but because it was like they had, they had survived somehow. That like these were people that I don't think we knew you know, we know all the stuff about it's a precarious business and the margins are narrow and stuff. Being reminded, I guess, of how much you actually care in like a real sort of fully felt human way about these places that otherwise just kind of blend into the texture of your day-to-day life. Like in some ways, I think that that's like instructive and something we can carry forward out of this. Like, and it'd be, I would love to read you, you know, going to more restaurants in Queens or going to more restaurants that like, you know, aren't, like the version of Estiatorio Milos that's in the fancy mall across town from the other one or whatever. Yeah. But it's still like, it's hard. I mean, it's just, I guess it just sort of reminds you of the extent to which everybody's in it together, but then also the extent to which that requires compromises. Right. Because all it takes is one jerk being like, you know, this mask actually is going to make me sick. I don't want to wear it here in this restaurant. And then like, yeah, you're fucking it up for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I remember you, you, you wrote something, Pete, about, um, or you might it might have been uh, something that you had you had referenced about someone who had been a who had been assaulted for asking someone to put on a mask and had to get stitches in their head. And there oh was a God, photo yeah. of of the head wound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was funny because you know you were just talking about um, you know the waiters you would talk to, and whenever I read your reviews or read any any reviews, service was always. Um, was always treated as a sort of ambiguous thing. Like even if, like, like you, you said you wouldn't, you wouldn't say, you wouldn't talk to the waiter on the phone. So if there was a waiter or a host who was good to you or rude to you in a review, 
they would go unnamed and they would sort of be part of the identity of the restaurant. Yes. Um, were you, f- and, but we now know, you know, what these people are going through. And if, if you've worked in a restaurant and I have, um, you know, you, you, you've known it intimately from experience, but you know, is it going to change how you, or has your attitude toward what constitutes, you know, the people who do the service front of the house, has that changed, uh, you know, throughout this? I mean, I think I've always appreciated, I've always appreciated the, the role that they play in, in um, the kind of suspension of disbelief that makes a good meal, you know, right? Yeah, they, the theater. Right. The, the theater and also the, some, like, the, one of the things they do is sort of they remove friction. And, you know, they're, they're, just to use an overused term, but, like, you know, so much of daily life is just f- pure friction. And you come into the restaurant and, and like, th- they can take that away, right? So, like, Ooh, you ask yeah. for a drink and the drink arrives, right? It's you magic. Right? Yeah. You don't have to, like, go to your liquor cabinet and be like, oh, what ingredients? Oh, oh, did I really drink the gin last night? Uh, you know, all the, you know, who didn't refill the ice cube trays? All the things that that can, like, just make a simple act complicated and aggravating, they can just take it away. And it's it's miraculous. So I've I've always, like, felt that. I just, like, I I don't think I've, um, I allude to it sometimes, and, and especially when the service is really great, but I've never really, like, like I think properly like just zeroed in on it because it's you know it's almost too much to do it in the context of a single review you know like waiter brought my drink and I was so grateful yeah I I do more than drink in these restaurants but like you know that that, that's why I know (laughs) it's often you just stop there you know uh um um but that's a, it's a challenge for me to, to try to write about them. I mean, I don't call them out. And I, I, I've, even, I've even kind of stopped, like, you know, sometimes waiters say things that are just inadvertently hilarious or unbelievably pretentious. And I've even kind of tried to stop doing that because I don't want to get somebody fired. You know, I, like I've moved sure. away from that. And I try to make it really clear when I do call out something a waiter's done that it's like, it's the restaurant's fault. Like this person wasn't properly trained, or they didn't get, get the right script, or they're they're reading off a ridiculous script that the chef wrote. You know, it just makes no sense. Um, you know, I try not to make it about an individual. You know, the chef. I'm very happy making it about the chef, but you know, the 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 waiter. No, it's just not. It's not right. Like they 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 can get fired so easily. They already have like you know these very you know unstable, you know, career situations where the, the restaurant might close next week. So I try not to, you know, make it harder for them. But Well, that imbalance is inherently unfair, isn't it? You know? How I so? mean, that, 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 that the chef is the one who gets to be the identity of the restaurant and, of course, is the, the you know, sort of the lodestar of the restaurant. And so automatically, they're the ones who are sort of the locus of the review. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because it, it's, the restaurant is, is they are the auteur, right? And so the, the, and the supporting players, you know, who are the people who, who make the magic, like you said. Yeah. Well, even in the, in the kitchen, you've got, you know, like if I, if I say, you know, the, 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 you know, this is Andrew Carmelini's dish, it may have been, you know, uh, one of the line cooks who, who came in one day and had a, a couple extra minutes and, and tried something out and said, chef, 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 will you taste this, please? And chef tastes it and tweaks it a little bit and puts it on the menu. But that becomes Andrew Carmelini's dish. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, it's the, uh, the invention of the Arnold Palmer tweet where, uh, where somebody <laughs> gives him something mixed with lemonade and iced tea and he sips it and goes, ah, it's delicious. I just invented it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, then, so then, Pete, let me ask you, because you went out uh, you did a big a big thing about, and I'm sorry, I, I, I should have remembered the names of the restaurants, but you went out and you dined out at, your favorite one was a place that had, like, uh, you sat down, like, like a Japanese... Uh, uh, yeah, a low, ta- a low table with a heater built into the tabletop. 
Yes, yes. Yeah. We're very cool. And it, like, like yeah. you looked at, I looked at it in the photo, and I was like, I don't know if I want to sit on my ass on an elevated platform outside on a sidewalk. But then you described it, and I was like, actually, I do want to do that. Yeah. But you do, so my right? my question to you was, when you went out uh, to all these restaurants, did you feel like the f- they managed to get the friction gone in the, you know, if not in the same ways before, at least to some degree? They're all doing. A, I think they're all doing a great job with that. They're all doing. Uh, they're all doing a great job with trying to make people feel comfortable. Um, uh, trying to pretend that this is what we always did. You know, <laughs> this is not a post-apocalyptic right. scenario. This is how it always was. You've always you've always had to wear long underwear to go to a restaurant, right? <laughs> um, uh, I, I, they're they're great, and it's and it's like. It's a lot of work to kind of reconceive how you do service. I mean, there were places, you know, back in in, in the summer when we were doing outdoor dining, there were places that, you know, always serve things on plates with tweezers, and there might be a little side dish, and, and, and they were just throwing that all out the window and bringing you stuff in plastic baskets, you know. They had to just reconceive, like, like how do we want to present our stuff? Even what can we, what can we cook? What can we plate of the, we've got a skeleton crew in the kitchen what can we actually manage uh and they're doing that now in the winter too just in a different way they're you know what can we serve that won't be ice cold by the time the customer takes the first bite you know so like lots of th- lots of things sushi probably is, is perfect you know lots of other things um, mm. uh, are not just not getting served. There were a lot of soups and, and fondue is like all over New York in a in a kind of great way. Uh, but they, they, you know, they've had to use their imaginations like over and over and just think on their feet in, in a way that's like really impressive. Did you feel uh, guilty that you were the recipient of of not only not only their the mental load they had to do to re-engineer their experience, but also, uh, you know, for, for the risk that uh, servers have to go through to serve people. Um, I have not felt, I have not felt guilty. I, 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 there's a whole, there's, there's a whole, I don't know. There's like a, I think it's part of the overall like culture war and politicization of, of, COVID that's, that's sort of, you know, um, uh, corroding this country, but there's this whole, uh, um, you know, the virtue of not going to restaurants and the, and, and the people, you know, I know people who think that anyone who goes out to a restaurant and knowingly like puts the servers at risk so, so they can have their frozen margarita is a sociopath and i don't really see it that way at all you know but i like i do like i do think there are ways to do this safely um i have seen restaurants that i think we're not doing it safely and i won't go to them and i won't write about them although i've, I've actually did i sort of did you know in that story about the yurts and the tents, I did kind of call out a couple places where I thought they were exposing the servers to me more often than they really needed to. You know, like, for okay. example, like, do not have the server come in to the little glass house every time my water glass needs to be refilled. Leave a carafe on the table. Like, that is so simple and basic, and you've cut down on these, you know, potential contacts, and you've cut down on the time that the server has spent breathing my air um like that just seems so basic but like you know i do i do think there are ways to 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 minimize the risk nothing's risk-free but there are ways to minimize the risk and i don't feel guilty about that all at all i think people need to make their own choices about you know uh what do they think what what are they comfortable with what do they think is the is the responsible thing to do, and for God's sake, if you you know might have been exposed to to somebody with COVID, you better be staying home. You know, um, you better not be going out to a restaurant if you if you're not sure, you know, if you've got it or not. But like, I don't think guilt is like a really 
it is really an appropriate response. I don't know. Like, I, I feel guilty, I guess, as a society that we've screwed this up so badly. Yeah, I've mostly felt it as embarrassment. Yeah. You know, as like a sort of a shame that like, because there are, like you said, there's best practices and some places do seem to be following them. And then a lot of places just are not. And there's no, it feels like there's no consequence one way or the other for it. You know, that like there is in the sense that like, I won't go to like, have a beer at a bar where they're just like packing ass on the sidewalk like it's normal and just having everybody sit near each other at like eight top tables. Right. But it all feels so like it's not sort of resting on anything. You know, well, that like this is just it, a series of choices that you have to hope are being made responsibly by all involved. Well, because it's like, rudderless, you know? Yeah. It's like it's like Cuomo being like, well, you can you can go have a drink, but you have to have a Totino's pizza roll, too. Right. Because <laughs> uh, that, that's small business and whatever dumb fucking shit he said. But so, it's all, yeah, it's all based on his judge, like his idea of like what is and isn't appropriate to do. Yeah, so you know, it like, feels, it's like, it's almost like everyone is a, it, it, and victim is a too strong word, but a, uh, you know, I'll, just use, I'll say it anyway because I can't think of something else, but, but a victim of <laughs> circumstance. So, so the servers... They, you know, the restaurants don't have direction. The servers don't have direction because the restaurant doesn't have direction. The customers are essentially, you know, you essentially have to uh, have faith that the customers are going to do the right thing. Uh, and that kind of depends on where you are because New York's a relatively liberal town. I think people are going to do it. But if you do it in like Houston, you might be fucked. So uh, it just seems, it seems like, it seems like it's all a byproduct of a, a complete and utter failure of leadership that we're living through. Yeah, I mean, you could, you could like draw a chart of the political leadership of this country, put it on the wall, and throw a dartboard, throw a dart at it, and hit somebody who has screwed up, let us down. Like, it, yeah. it's just, you know, from, you know, I, I mean, I talk a lot about the, you know, public health messaging, and, I, and in some ways I think the public health people are like, the, the last people I should be criticizing because they've been so overwhelmed by this, you know, it, it, the right. New York City Health Department, you know, they're dealing with so many giant, giant problems, you know, but, but having said that, people are confused about what they're supposed to be doing. People are confused about masks. People don't know if they are supposed to be wearing cloth masks or, you know, now that the 90, N95s are available, should be wearing those, should be wearing, you know, people are confused about the most basic stuff and it wouldn't be that hard to educate them. It it's wouldn't been be that shocking. hard. There's to, never been a coherent message on it. There's never been. You just, I mean, I just think about like, you know, like I was in New York in the 80s and 90s and I remember like really good, clear public health campaigns about HIV and AIDS. Now this is after years and years of like, the government ignoring AIDS, but but when they got their act together and figured out like how to how to message it, they did a great job, I think. Uh, uh, and uh, and I don't see any of that now. Any of the places where where you know where the city or the state could be using the means at their disposal to like give people simple, clear messages about what to do. They're, they're, they're doing a little of it, but not, not enough. And you, I just, you, know, you just know that people are wandering around with false impressions or they don't, or they just don't know the risks. Or, it's, or it's being bad put in positions where even if they do know that it's bad, there's not an alternative that, like, they don't have the agency to, like, be like, no, I don't want to, I mean, they could leave. But, like, I don't want to work as a server in this sort of situation. Like, you can't right. like, say that. And that's... Right. So we had, I mean, we had, we had, un, we had unemployment uh, that ran for a long time and allowed a lot of restaurant people to stay home as long as they were documented, undocumented. People couldn't get any of that money, but if they were documented, you could get money. And then that ran out, you know, so that, and that's around the time everybody was like, well, I guess I'm going back to work again. I don't feel that great about it, but I'm going to, but I don't have another option here. Yeah. You know, in the rest, there are plenty of restaurants that would have chosen to remain closed if they had gotten some funding to, you yeah. know, um, uh, or if they'd been, you know, if they're, if they're, if the PPP loans had been easier to get and had been more substantial and had been, you know, all these different ways that the, 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 you know, we could have. You know, we could have at all these different levels 
taken the onus of figuring out what to do away from the individuals who are not really well positioned to make those choices. And it would, I think it really would have been as simple as money in a lot of instances. That it's just a matter of like, if you give people the opportunity to make a responsible choice, if you give them the wherewithal to do it, maybe they will. Like, you have to hope that they will. Yeah, money but if and, you and don't, information. Yeah. But if you leave them with neither of those outcomes and you give them confusing messaging and a half measure in terms of actual material support, then like all that stuff, all the incentives start running in the wrong direction, you know, in the direction of what, you know, you were talking about, which is like, ah, well, you know, like, what are you going to do? Right. Uh, let me uh, let me take a break uh, or let us take a break and come right back. So uh, we're back. So we were talking about the, the present uh, situation in New York and, and everywhere else uh, in, in the restaurant industry uh, with Pete Wells in the New York Times. Uh, and, but I want to talk to you now about the future of dining, Pete. Because the future. The future. So you had the yurts and the cabanas and the weird, like, the places where you can only get a yurt at a restaurant if you were an Amex cardholder and all that stuff. Do you think... Uh, if New York City allows it, and if other city allows it, some of these uh, COVID-adjusted dining experiences will stay. Like, will there be yurts on a sidewalk in 2023 when you want to go out for, like, ramen in Brooklyn or some shit like that? Yeah, it's pretty clear that that some of this is going to stay around. So, um, you know, and I can only talk about New York City here because I because the that's that's where I've reported. I don't know if other cities have done this, but um, you know, one thing that New York did r- r- back in June was they vastly simplified the process for applying for a, a sidewalk permit. You know, so it used to be this like months long thing, and you had to get architect- there were hearings. I remember right, seeing like notifications in my neighborhood where it's like if you, if you want to come see if this diner gets to have an umbrella out front, they can come to this meeting at the gym and this local high school and hear oh. about right. So the neighbor who lived upstairs would come and say, "I don't think it's a good idea." These people they leave their trash out, you know, and then you know, uh, it, you had to, it just cost money and it took time and. As a result, a lot of people didn't do it. So then the city, um, to, to just get restaurants back open again when indoor dining was still banned, they came up with a super streamlined online form. You just check all these boxes and say, I certify that I'll do this, and I have done that, and I, and I promise I'm definitely going to do that. And you're authorized, like, immediately. And so that's why, you know, now you see sidewalk cafes where, where there never were before. And I think... I'm pretty sure that system is here to stay. Like they are not going to go back to the old, like you know, the six months and and three thousand dollars to to get your permit. Um, now, if De Blasio can help it, though, yeah, <laughs> the whole it's a load bearing part of the New York City economy is the whoa, um, whoa, whoa. public this... hear the public hearing business. Yeah, this is too efficient. This doesn't have enough co-op board energy. To... I sure hope you're right. I do feel like getting rid of like. Some of these plywood structures, I will cheer when they come down, like some of the weird, like sort of fakey dining rooms that have gone up in my neighborhood. But I sure hope that a lot of this stuff does, like yurts aside or whatever, like anything that makes it easier for people to uh, enjoy being outdoors in New York City when it's pleasant to be outdoors in New York yeah. City, like definitely seems like a win. Well, By the way, the, I, I should note that the, uh, the restaurant that I was referring to uh, with the uh, Katatsu uh, traditional Japanese katatsu tables it was Dr. Clark. Yes, uh, downtown. Yes, down where, yeah, where Winnie's used to be by yeah by the the edge of Chinatown. Um, uh, it's 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 great. They they started out with I don't know four or five of them, and they were so popular. They've they've got like eleven or twelve now. They just like took over that whole. It's a very quiet uh, stretch down there. They've just taken it over, and it's it's ah, it's great. I love it. Um, um, well, you know. I, I, now that like so the two two things are gonna I think the old you know clunky system is is gone that the, they'll they'll find ways to make the new streamlined system clunkier uh, but it, I don't <laughs> think it'll ever be as clunky as the old system uh, or it'll take years it'll take decades to get there you know um, and then the you know the street dining program which is where you know restaurants can put up platforms in what used to be parking spaces that you know the mayor's said that's going to be with us forever. She's making that permanent. 
um, which is, you know, part of a, you know, a, a broader uh, vision to kind of you know, get cars off the streets. Like they're just like, you know, the, I didn't realize this until I started um, reporting on this, but the, uh, it used to be illegal to leave your car on the street overnight in New York until like the 40s or I think the 50s. Wow. You had to put it in a garage. You, it, it was just the, so every morning you'd, you'd leave your house and the streets would be clear the streets would be empty it's impossible uh, to imagine it's that is amazing. the purest science fiction to me I, I know love it, I know because part of New York is like cars on both sides cars double parked here and then like well you know one lane of traffic that's left open that you try to snake through um, but uh, there's you know there's a you know case to be made that like that's public space. There's no way, and I have a car, but like, why am I allowed to get free parking on the streets of New York in public space? Like, why is that? Why is that and good for the? And who's that space going to benefit more? Right? That like, is a restaurant that gets five tables in there and you know has it all set up so that it's nice and they can do business in it. Like, is that better than like me parking my like busted ass Honda CRX there and just leaving it there for three days? Like, I would say yes, probably right. yes. And the and, you know, and the people get to use that. People get to use that space. And I, I mean, I'd rather walk by a beach umbrella and a bunch of people, you know, drinking their frozen Negronis than I would w- walk by my white outback. You know. Yeah. The places that I've seen that have been creative with it. Um, again, like this is this takes us back to Portland, but the little stretch of Middle Street in Portland, which is where uh, some of our favorite restaurants are. When we went up there during the summer, they had set up. It was, you know, there was always places to eat outside, but it was similar to the setup we have here. Like there's cars parked and then there's some chairs next to the the structure of the building itself. In this case, they've got these Jersey barriers and they've set up like really nice, socially distant spaces at, you know, there's some real juggernaut popular restaurants there that have like set it up so that they can still turn over, a, you know, a good number of tables or whatever every night without it being you know, they, they limited it to one lane of traffic that goes one way and on the street, which is like, it's not a super busy stretch. They managed to do it. I hope it never comes down. Like, I think that like, it's good for everybody. Like, and it feels more like, like you were saying, like in terms of restoring that balance between like, who is this for? That like, it feels more like the, uh, the city is working for the people there that are like selling things and eating things than it is for the people that are just driving through on their way to like, you know, one place or another. Yeah. Well, what what should happen now that the street space the street spaces are supposed to be permanent? What should happen is that restaurants will invest in those structures, and they're still going to have to be a little bit flimsy because you need to be able to move them if like there's a right. snowstorm, right? So there's certain you know certain like ways in which it can't become like a, you know a concrete building out on the street, but right. but uh, uh, but. But now the restaurants know it's not just for like a couple months, and and the the threat of Cuomo coming in and saying, "Yeah, let's not do this anymore," is gone away. Like people start to get creative, and they'll put they'll put some money into it when they have money to spend. Yeah, I like the idea of there being a more live. There's one place in our neighborhood, our local restaurant has they set up a decently nice, you know, sort of like plastic and wood set up outdoors. There's no heaters or anything. But if you go by on the days that they're closed, like on Sundays, people from the building above them just like have birthday parties out there in that space. And I think they must have like worked that out together. But it was cool to see like a little, you know, in the way that everything in the absence of the stuff that we actually like love and are used to about New York City, that the presence of anything that feels like New York City uh, gives me this like happy E.T. glowing heart sort of uh, response and seeing like the city respond in this like all right well here's a bunch of tables and they're covered like let's go out there and eat a birthday cake and like drink from a 2 liter of 7 up with these kids like seeing that happen on a sunday made me feel like something was recovered yeah. you know and i hope that that stays like yeah uh, do you, oh yeah. sorry go ahead no i was just going to say i mean it's our there are streets and our sidewalks that belong they belong to us and we you know we, it's great to see new yorkers using them do you think, because um, I, I had read something uh, really good by Aaron Timms and N Plus One about what restaurants had become prior to the pandemic and how the pandemic actually sort of exacerbated sort of the worst aspects of them in terms of ghost kitchens and seamless and things like that. But, you know, w- let's say we come back and um, 
Uh, have you had time in the past year to think about what restaurants had become and what they ought to be, not just in terms of the outdoor dining and, you know, sort of adjustments for COVID, but just the, the, the way that they're run themselves, the infrastructure of the restaurant. Have you thought about what they were like, how they had evolved prior to the pandemic and what they will or at least should look like afterward? Well, yeah, a little bit. There's a lot. I mean, there are like all the, the sort of the delivery apps and the ghost kitchens and stuff. To, to me, that's this like underworld that I don't that I don't even see or understand. And I don't know anybody who operates in it, but I know it's out there under the surface. But like, and, and ah, but should you should you understand it? Well, in my current role now as like beat reporter on on the restaurant beat, I probably should as a, as as New York Times restaurant critic, food dystopia uh, correspondent. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> um, um, I do think one benefit, at least for me, is that um, uh, a lot of the pretentiousness is going to be knocked out of chefs for a while. Like a lot of the you know just preciousness and 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 the, you know what I always think of as like the stuff that nobody asked for. You know, like I didn't ask for some like like chef to make a little cube out of reduced mushroom bouillon. You know, like I didn't, like this. I didn't want that. You know, are you uh, saying you're anti amuse bouche? Are you? I've are never you been like super pro. I mean, I'm actually in favor. Of like like you know, you want to lay you know a plate of ham in front of me at the start of the meal. I am very happy about that. (laughs) (laughs) But But, if you're shorting the gelée market, then like that sounds right right to me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. So I think, and I mean, you know, I, I think a lot of that right now seems preposterous and, and will continue to seem ridiculous. And I also think a lot of, you know, chefs who had gone pretty far down the road have had to, realize like what really matters and what do people really want and how can I provide that to maybe stay in business for a couple more months and I think that's gonna that's gonna change them just the you know the, the it, it, it sort of has it has to unless I mean there's some people who were you know some were born pretentious, some achieved pretentiousness, you know. Some <laughs> thrust upon them, yes. Right. So there are people who all just always, this is their default mode. But but I think a lot of like what it, within the sort of fine dining world, what it, there were things that were assumed that you had to do to be taken seriously. And I think maybe this will reset that a little bit. Um, yeah, because now, you know, a lot of those people have been packing their food in boxes and putting it in paper bags and writing an address on the bag. They've been doing that for almost a year now, you know? So, like, that's... Some of them are going to be very happy to get their dining rooms back, but I do think, like, the, you know, just the experience of, like, how can I simplify this dish and make it, more, like, something that people are really going to want to eat? Like, I think that's going to stick with them. I sure hope it does. I mean, so much of the of the of the reviews that you've written that have gone biggest, so many of them I think are about that tension between like paying this incredible price for this incredible high production value experience, whether that's at at per se or at Peter Luger or whatever, and then just having it be kind of like flat. Yeah, just you know, joy- having, joyless. Yeah. yeah, and I well, think the that, price the price puts pressure on people. Like, you're if I spend five hundred dollars on a meal. Like, I'm automatically, like, it automatically, I automatically have expectations that I need to have met. Otherwise, I'm going to be pissed. And, and then the restaurant also knows that they have to deliver. So there's this element of, okay, well, we have to give you a 42-course tasting menu so that I'm represented. Yeah. You and know, it has the, to have show-offy ingredients and fancy <laughs> techniques and the whole, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I yeah, that's, I think that is a thing that, that has been not very good. So many the of the of the things in the, the I always read the little 
restaurant capsules at the front of the New Yorker when we get it every, and it seems like they've been the same for, like you said, for like basically a year where it's like a chef from, and then you just pick some fancy restaurant, like in, you know, from 11 Madison park, like, you know, you can't go into work. So like he started selling uh, fried chicken out of his home and now like it's this boom thing. And maybe he's just going to do that. Maybe he's going to want to, you know, just become like the dumpling guy. And like, I feel like to a certain extent, you know, obviously like, I want 11 Madison Park to come back. Like, we can't afford to go there, but it's cool. Like, one of the cool things about living in New York is just knowing that it's there. Right. Me. And, but, like, I also hope that, like, that does, yeah, even if it's not, like, democratizing, it's not necessarily it. There's always going to be expensive places. But stripping that veneer of, of unnecessary theater and expense from it would be a blessing if we did come out the other side with that. Yeah, man. When I lived in New York, I used to be the guy like I, we would buy the Zagat Guide of every year and just eye bang it. And I'd like I'd look at places like, uh, like a you know a Blue Ribbon or something. Like that. Oh, that sounds really good. Like even though like the the average price for the meal was like eighty or something. Yeah, like, you're uh, seriously like, well, that's like what I make in one day. Yeah, so I would like <laughs> eat vicariously just by like reading the little snippet. Like critics, you know, diners say it's a blast. I'm like, that sounds. Fun. Yeah, I love that Zagat syntax is so good too. That I have a whole friend that we've been doing bits about that for years. About like you could do a lot worse. Like you have to like throw the quotes <laughs> on it with your own voice. But, uh, Pete, uh, Pete, what have you missed the most uh, dining wise uh, the past year? I actually, uh, I, this won't surprise you after everything I've been saying. I really miss the bars. I, I miss. I miss. Uh, yeah, man. I miss bars. I miss restaurant bars. I miss eating at the restaurant bar. And I miss all my cocktail bars where I could just go in and have somebody stir something up. And just the lighting and the, the that particular kind of, it's not really a hush, but it's not noisy either. Just that sort of hum of a nice, small, civilized cocktail bar. I miss that. I miss the loud places too but 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 what i'm really missing is just being able to just sit up at the bar and and give an order and have the bartender hand it over to me i i just like there's there's nothing like that even though i've gotten some kind of cool cocktails packed into you know glass bottles delivered to my door and i stick them in the freezer and take them out as needed but um uh which is pretty often (laughs) But, (laughs) but uh Oh gosh, just just to to be in a bar with strangers, with somebody, yeah, with a stranger. Yeah. Well, people watching. Oh, yeah. overhearing somebody's Tinder date gone horribly awry. Like, oh. <laughs> of all the yeah, it's so weird. The things that I, I mean, I've had dreams about this. I think I talked about this in a previous episode too, about having dreams about like being at a party and like not really having fun, but just being there and just being like, oh, all right, like that guy, cool, like getting. But like any of that, like that stuff that comprised what was normal, like hell yeah, I miss it. Like was there all the was there... all the stuff I evolved to like over you know basically being in this city through my twenties and thirties, like it's going to bars, going to restaurants, like going to you know shows and looking at art. And I can't do any of that shit. Yeah. Like I mean, I can. I can do like some dumb version of it where I feel bad the whole time, but it's not the same. And yeah, like, I miss live music. Like crazy although there is some hope that that some of that can be brought out in the streets uh um but i think it's going to take an effort you know yeah just thinking about what it'll take to be like shouting along with other people at a show like when does that happen next yeah (laughs) we're uh we're we're coming up on uh, on the hour so i wanted to subject you to a quick lightning round pete uh i'm terrible at lightning rounds no these are all right these are all dumb things what was the best takeout you ate Oh, I did have that that fried chicken from the guy who used to cook at. I don't remember if it was no. It uh, was at Eleven Madison Park. Eleven Madison. Yeah, about. yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was really good. And then there's a uh, a uh, a place in Park Slope called Winter that does this like smoked and smoked and grilled boneless chicken with a bunch of sauce. That was really good. But then I've been getting all these pastries delivered to the house lately. So like I've had uh, just this really nice like fennel buckwheat cookies that like just things that I, like I would would you know like part of like what I love about restaurants is is like yeah there's comfort and there's familiarity but there's also like this the thing that you would never have come up with on your own that turns out to be delicious 
you know. Yeah, because the fennel buckwheat cookie, you're like, what? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, like everybody's done their best as like home cooks during this period, but oh, like I'm not yeah. gonna accidentally make a good fennel buckwheat cookie, and no, it would have to be an accident. <laughs> what was the best thing you cooked, Pete? Did did you do? Did you have a bread making phase? Um, I made a little bread. I made a little bread. I had more luck with with focaccia and pizza. Like the bread that I made, it's always kind of lumpy, brick-like, and, like, you can get bread in New York. Yeah. Can, yep. I mean, that's one thing that we have. You can get it That's always been my side most, of it, too. Most major cities in our country, you can get bread. You don't need to make the bread. If you live where it was, sure. But, uh, um, God, I'm turning into Fran Leibowitz. <laughs> no. <laughs> what do you need? You didn't move to New York to make bread. <laughs> but... But the, the pizza thing's been us, too, man. That's just, like, it is, like, a thing that's, like, kind of hard, but not really hard. I've, well, I've been using these, a couple of different no-need recipes, and that's the simplest thing in the world. You just pour the stuff in a big bowl, and you go to sleep, and in the morning you've got this, like, spongy blob that's ready to start <laughs> locomoting across the kitchen floor. And uh, it's it's super simple. It's really rewarding, and and... and Better than what you could get delivered. You just can't get All anything right, right out All right, so we buttered you up for an hour, so there's, there's two, I have two hard questions for you. One is, I contacted you five years ago um, for GQ. I was working on a profile of Guy Fieri for GQ. Yes. And it was after you... Can you say that again? Yeah. It was Guy Fieri? Yes. I, he told <laughs> me... He told me that's how he pronounces his last name. I know he was born Guy Ferry, but now he pronounces it Guy Fieri. So I pronounce it Guy Fieri. To anyway, respect his imagined point, lived experience. This isn't about me. This is about me putting the screws to Pete Wells, damn it. <laughs> uh, of course, you had an infamous review of, of Guy's uh, Kitchen in Times Square, and he didn't like that very much. Uh, but uh, I was going okay, to ask, in the ensuing five years, has your opinion of Guy changed? Because I feel like the culture's attitude toward Guy has changed a lot. I never had an opinion about Guy except that I thought Triple D was a good show. And I thought somehow that the Times Square restaurant betrayed the spirit of Triple D. Uh, oh, that's yeah. interesting. Um, but, um, you know, I thought he was out. I, I, I loved the stuff he was celebrating. I don't necessarily believe that every single one of those diners is as good as he wants us to believe. But I do believe, you know, he's, he's celebrating stuff that I think should be celebrated just... Just some recipe that some guy in Utica made up one afternoon that like people loved, right? That stuff should be celebrated. Um, uh, so I, I, you know, I it uh, it's funny because I think it's become hard sometimes for critics to do traditional criticism because a lot of the audience is now conditioned to respond from a fan place from a, as, as a fan yeah right so I think that restaurants would be the last place for that but it's i mean it's not i think it's every place is the place for that now but and it's, also it's, like yeah and guy fieri especially is going to be a dude with like it's completely poisoned the well for games and movies and music, television yeah but and yeah, politics but, i mean like yep i mean i think the you guys were talking about the 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 capital home invasion a couple of weeks ago, and like, like among many, many other things, that was kind of like fan behavior gone amok, you know? Yeah, well, they got it. That's the part of it that's almost like poignant or like funny, although it's, you know, not really either of those things. Is that they, they had one demand, which was like more Trump. And then when they got in there, like there's a bit in um, the Luke Mogelson videos from them breaking into the Senate. So they're in there and like the Q shaman guys yelling and they're like, what do we do now? And one of them's like, start a government, dude. And like that's like I don't know like that's it's a little funny but also like they don't... it's it's incoherent fascism yeah it's it's incoherent fascism yeah that's what it is. did you ever hear from the Luger folks after your review you might have already said this already publicly uh, I did here. not I had, I admired their their uh, PR campaign which was was basically like. You know, we we don't do the trendy stuff that that guy likes. We don't do your kale salads over here at Luga's. We just do <laughs> steaks. We do spinach. That's what we do. And I thought that was like the perfect response. You know, <laughs> it is All also right. though a very political messaging sort of response too. We're being like elite Pete Wells of the failing New York Times, and you're like, I'm get the yeah. fuck out of here with that. Like, yeah, they, you gotta they, throw it. You, you gotta mention kale if you're. 
If you're if you're ten years behind jokes and you want to call someone pretentious, you got to toss scale in there. Right. That, that was so, what was so great about it too. It was sort of like having your grandfather make fun of you. It was like you and your <laughs> kale. <laughs> finally, on. <laughs> finally, Pete, uh, can you play before you go? Can you play dead or canceled with us? Can you play one round of dead or canceled? Yes. Okay. You have to tell me whether this person is dead or whether or not they've been canceled. Your subject this week. Monkey's bassist Peter Tork. Is Peter Tork dead or canceled, Pete Wells? I think dead. He is dead. That is correct. Uh-huh. Peter Tork of the Monkeys. Yep. I mean, may, may he rest in peace. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he did anything cancelable apart from being in the being Monkeys. Being a monkey, but yeah. Yeah, that's really it. That this is, you're going to hear from Dave McKenna. He's going to send, <laughs> gonna send a certified letter to your home defending the Monkeys, Pete. Pete Wells, you are a fantastic <laughs> guest. We are, we are so happy that you came on and to talk about this because I feel like like the friction thing, I thought was really, really interesting. And then what you said about, uh, you know, everything is coming at, from the perspective as a fan at criticism, I thought was really yeah. Interesting. I like those two. Those are my those are my highlights. Those are my keys to the game. All right. So for the five minute edit of the podcast, we can. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, we my favorite part was when you mentioned the cookie. That sounded really good. Yeah. I, I, I'll, I'll see if I, I can. Got, I'll see if I, I if they're I, making I, it again. <laughs> Uh, Brandon Nix is our producer and engineer. Daisy Rosario is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Citra Premium. And thanks to us, you can get a free month of Citra Premium right now. If you go to citrapremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. And go subscribe to Defector.com too. And subscribe also to a, a small business concern called The New York Times, which is where Pete Wells works. And you can find him, I believe you are at Pete Wells on Twitter. Yes, is that correct, Pete? Pete underscore Wells, yeah. Pete underscore Wells I don't know why. at Twitter. Yeah, you, I, I got I two a, underscores in mine, man. It's, oh, it was okay. different then. We didn't know. <laughs> I, I have a beef with the underscore. I, I don't care for it, but that's, 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 a, that's for another podcast. Thank you, Pete. Thank you so much. 